How you guys doing? All right. Yesterday was summer. Today is winter. That is the news. Well, we are continuing this series, uh, Exile. We are looking at the life of Daniel. If you've not been around, this story that unfolded, I don't know, 2,600 years ago, Jerusalem invaded by the prevailing power of the day, uh, the Babylonians. Daniel and a bunch of his friends and many countrymen taken off uh, to live in Babylon. We've been asking a series of questions throughout this series, and this weekend the question that we are asking is, how do we live when nobody's looking? How do we live when nobody's looking? And we're going to be talking today about integrity and about holiness. Now, even though we're in Daniel chapter 6, we're actually getting towards the end of Daniel's story. You say, how can that be? There are 12 chapters in Daniel. Well, chapters 7 through 12 are about the dreams and visions that he had. Uh, We are not quite at the lion's den yet. We'll be there in a couple of weeks. But at this point in history, Daniel is 85. He's 85 or something like that. Often when we see uh, artist depictions of Daniel being placed in the lion's den, you see an an agile uh, adolescent with a masculine physique uh, somewhat dissimilar, or somewhat similar, I should say, to my own. (laughs) Dissimilar was obviously the right word that I should have chosen there, Freudian slip. But actually, he's probably helped into the lion's den because he's 85. A new king, uh, Darius, is on the throne. He is reorganizing his kingdom, and he's appointing 120 regional leaders. They're called satraps. And then over the 120 satraps, there are three key, there's a cabinet of three key leaders. And then one of those three is appointed, or going to be appointed, as prime minister, if you will. And that's going to be Daniel which is remarkable because he's one of the exiles. He's an outsider, but now he is rising to the very top position, apart from the king, in the entire empire. But uh, today is summer and tomorrow is winter, to use the illustration earlier. It had been summer for Daniel when he heard he was going to be prime minister. Then suddenly winter hits in a moment because there's conspiracy, jealousy, envy, intrigue in the corridors of power. Now, we're going to do something a little different this morning. How many of you are up for something a little different? Raise your hand. Some of you look truly terrified. It's okay. I'm not going to do a prophetic dance or anything like that. Uh, Some of you are disappointed by that. Uh, Why don't you stand with me if you're able, please? Just stand with me. And um, I'm going to read these verses. Daniel 6, it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, 
unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Why am I asking us to stand together? Uh, well, as pastors, we meet before these weekends to pray and reflect. And during our meeting, we had a very strong sense that the prayer that we should pray for this service, for all four services, is simply this, that eyes might be opened. That eyes might be open. We're not interested in just adding to our historical information banks and figuring out a bit more stuff about a story. We want eyes to be open. So would you pray with me? Father, thank you because you're about the business of transformation in our lives. May our eyes be open today. May they be open to the truth of the call to live distinctively. May they be open to the truth about the devastating nature of sin. May they be open to hope and love and grace. We agree together in Jesus' name. Everyone said? And before they sat down, they said to the person next to them, I'm jolly glad to be sitting next to you this wintry day. (laughs) Go ahead. Have a seat. I've told you before, um, I am not a golfer. Frankly, I hate golf. There's nothing wrong with the game. The problem is me. I've said before, I don't have a swing. I have a spasm. It's not good. And I've shared how Pastor Darry and I have played golf together with embarrassing results because he is irritatingly good at golf. And I am frustratingly bad at golf. I took my first shot, and I hit the ball straight into the lake. And Pastor Darry has a superlative gift of encouragement. He slapped me on the back, and he said, great shot, Lucas. I said, what do you mean, great shot, Northrop? I said, I just hit the ball into the lake. He said, Jeff, you just hit the ball. (laughs) That really is about the sum of it. Here is the greatest golfer in the world for reasons beyond his actual score. It's J.P. Hayes. Look at this man. Uh, Back in 2008, uh, he was in the second stage of the PGA Tour qualifying round. I don't know what PGA stands for, and don't rush to tell me. I don't care. And he uh, did well and qualified, uh, but when he got back to his hotel room, he realized something. He realized that he had taken two shots with a ball that was not regulation approved for use in the PGA. It was a prototype ball uh, sent to him by a golf ball company, and he had illegally, inadvertently taken two shots. Now, he is in an agonizing decision. Does he have to own up to this? He didn't have to say anything. Nobody filmed it. Uh, Nobody saw it. Just two shots. And it wasn't even his fault because the ball was handed to him by his caddy. No one would have known, he said, but I knew. And he said, the people above me knew. I think he was referring to God and the angels. And so he decided to confess. His integrity came at a price. He was disqualified from the PGA tournament for the year. And he was unable to play full time for a whole year. Two shots. He owned up. And it cost him dearly integrity. Integrity. Who are we when no one's 
looking. Well, we zero in in this series on Daniel. And notice, please, that I'm talking about integrity and holiness. And you might say, why have you thrown holiness in there as well? Well, integrity is a good word, but it comes from a Latin word, integritatum, which means soundness, wholeness, completeness. It's a good word, but I want to suggest that what Daniel had was integrity, but something deeper than integrity. There was a godliness about his behavior. There was a holiness that he was living out in Babylon. And so this weekend, I want to talk about integrity and holiness. If you're following in the bulletin, follow me with the first point then. And that is, there is a call to us all... There is a call to us all to live holy, exceptional, and provocative lives. Holy, exceptional, provocative lives. Now, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities, the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. This integrity, this holiness for Daniel, it it, it was played out in a number of ways. He He was faithful. He was trustworthy. He... He wasn't politically corrupt. He hadn't been soured by power. And he, was, he wasn't negligent. He performed. He did what was expected of him. One translation is that he had an excellent spirit. And, and he stood out, not just superficially, but notice that during this conspiracy, they attempted to scrutinize his behavior rigorously And under scrutiny, he passed the test. But it was more than just, he's a good guy. Because as people look at Daniel throughout the Daniel story, they look at Daniel and they catch a glimpse of God. Nebuchadnezzar, who we considered last week, the previous, or one of the previous kings, that was his experience. They looked at Daniel and they saw a bit of God. When I became a, a Christian, we used, to say, we used to say to people outside of the church, we'd say, don't look at us. Don't look at us Christians. Look at Jesus. And it sounded very pious, but it was actually not terribly helpful. First off, it's difficult to look at Jesus because if you've noticed, he's currently invisible. So that's a bit of a challenge. Not only that, but it's always been God's plan that there be a people even though they are fragile and imperfect, that there be a people who are a working model to demonstrate what life lived with Jesus looks like. In the Old Testament, it was Israel, a working model. In choosing Israel, Chris Wright, the uh, theologian and historian, has said God did not choose Israel at the expense of the rest of the world, but for the sake of the rest of the world. A working model to show the world what God looks like. And the same is true now with us. Jesus comes saying, I am the light of the world, and then he switches it around and says to his followers, you are the light of the world, a beacon people. What that means is we're supposed to be distinctive. We're not called to just blend in. We are called to be different. The word holy that Moses uses in Leviticus means to be set apart and marked off, that which is different. But let's face it, 
I mean, bluntly speaking, we humans, we're lemmings. We are creatures of conformity. What is fashion about? Fashion is about conformity. Someone somewhere, maybe in Paris, says, this looks cool, and we all go, yeah, that looks cool. And so fashion is governed by conformity. I'm wearing my cowboy boots. I love wearing cowboy boots. I don't usually wear them with shorts. Why is it that I don't do that despite the spectacular knees? It is because fashion tells me that would look stupid. It's all about conformity. Accent. Sometimes people say to me, you know, here in America, they say, we like your accent. And I say, thanks a lot. I like yours. They're like, what? We don't have an accent. You have an accent. No. You have an accent. We all have an accent. What is an accent? Well, it is the way that we speak which comes as a result of us hearing voices around us in childhood and therefore we emulate what we hear and we end up with an accent, hence mine, from Arkansas. <laughs> Often I have preachers introduce me when I visit churches and pastors they introduce me by trying to impersonate the British accent which is so cute. <laughs> Usually sounds like a drunk Swedish person. <laughs> Fashion and accents, it's all about us uh, copying, if you will, what we hear or what we're told. A story is told of a group of new police recruits. They were attending their first day of training and the senior training officer stood up uh, in, in front of these uh, would-be law enforcement officers, and he presented a scenario to them. He says, uh, you're on duty on a hot and busy day. You're nearing the end of your shift. You're weary. You, stra you stand on a crowded sidewalk talking with an elderly lady who has stopped to ask you directions. And out of the corner of your eye, you see a group of men running out of a store, and then the store clerk comes running out too, and she is chasing them, shouting, stop, thief, thief, stop them. So you excuse yourself from the elderly lady, you rush down the street to intervene, and just then you hear the crunching sound of two cars colliding, and you see that they've hit each other, and there is a motorcyclist uh, lying on the ground next to his bike, and just as you're juggling with how to respond to that, you, you hear a scream and you look up and in a fourth story apartment window there is a small child crying out for help and there is smoke coming out of the window. And the training officer said to the group, in that situation what would you do? And there was silence and then one brave recruit raised his hand and said, I'd remove uniform and merge with crowd. <laughs> and that's what we can be tempted to do. Daniel didn't do that. And look at this. Daniel didn't do that in Babylon. Here's how the logic could work. Yeah, I'm in Babylon. Miles from home, haven't seen my family for decades. This is second choice. I don't like this. I can excuse a bit of sin, really. See, pressure seems to print us permission wrongly to make bad choices. Daniel's consistent. The Hebrew in the text here 
says he was continually, continually distinguishing himself. I heard about a man who committed adultery because he didn't get the job that he wanted and felt that somehow he needed some compensation. I heard about another person who stole money from their employer because they didn't get the promotion they felt they deserved and therefore they felt that that problem justified that crime. We're called to be distinctive. And be careful when you lose hope because hope and holiness are entwined. When we lose hope, it's too easy to say, ah, so what? Just do it. And Daniel lived distinctively. We're called to do the same. Secondly, secondly, holiness, we need to redeem a misunderstood but biblical word. We need to redeem a misunderstood but biblical word. They could find no corruption in him. This is a man of God. He's a holy man. When I became a Christian, I, uh, I was desperate to please God. I responded to every sermon. We used to go to the altars, go to the front and... I'd be down at the front for every, every message, repenting of something. And it didn't matter what the sermon was about, if they were appealing for a new person to lead the ladies' underwater basket weaving group, I would say, yes, Lord Jesus, send me, here I am. I was desperate to please God, and I heard this word holy, and it freaked me out. And I found out that holy, holiness is a Bible word of the 20, 2005, excuse me, 2005 verses that the Apostle Paul wrote, 1,400 of them are about godliness, holiness, or Christian character. 1,400 verses, which I'd like us to work through right now in the next... No, we're not going to do that. But what does it mean, holiness? I went through a stage where I felt nervous about laughing. You ever met Christians like that? They think that being holy means you can't have any fun. They are joyless. They look very sanctified and mildly constipated. <laughs> there are other Christians who think that to be holy, you've got to separate yourself and get away from the world. Come out from among them and be separate. But Jesus, Jesus didn't do that physically. He was separate morally. But he was having meals with the sinners. He didn't somehow try to closet himself off, lest he be contaminated by those people. By the way, the reverse took place. When he bumps into the Gadarene demoniac, he is not infected by the demoniac, but he affects the demoniac with deliverance. And sometimes religious people have gone mad on this holiness thing and come up with ridiculous ideas, like the bruised and bleeding group, the Pharisees. The bruised and bleeding group were very worried that they might look at a woman with lust. And so they used to walk around the streets of Jerusalem with their eyes closed. Now, this, I'm not making this up. This sounds like something out of Monty Python, doesn't it? Some of you are going, Monty Python, is that in Exodus? No. <laughs> and when you walk around with your eyes closed, you bump into stuff. That's why they were called the bruised and bleeding group. How ridiculous is that? Let me ask you a question. It's kind of personal. How many of you um, are wearing an item of clothing that includes a zip fastener? A zip fastener. Just raise your hand. Sorry. Come forward right now <laughs> and repent. 
Now you say, why would we repent? Well, of course you don't have to. The zip fastener was invented in 1914 by Gideon Sumbach here in America. But churches campaigned vigorously against the zip fastener. And their rationale was that this could lead to a speedier removal of clothing, which would therefore lead to immorality. We must speak against the zip fastener. And so the zip fastener didn't really catch on until 1937. And people started having zip fasteners in, in, in trousers. By the way, in, in England, we, what you call the pants, we call those trousers. And let me just help you out here. Nothing to do with the message. Just a little travel tip. Um, in England, your pants are your underwear. Your underwear. Okay. I had a pastor friend come over to England, and we were at a conference together. His wife was walking a few yards behind him, and he yelled back and said, Honey, I'll see you in the conference uh, room. He said, um, I'm going to just go back to the room to change my pants. Heads turned. People think that's a lot of information right there. <laughs> sometimes the church has somehow codified holiness in ridiculous ways. And we even talk about being holier than thou. The average graduating college student, when asked their ambition in life, I've not heard too many say, yeah, I really want to be holy. But that's God's ambition for us. Let's reject the fake ideas about it. So what is it? Thirdly, holiness is reflecting God's character and experiencing God's power. It's reflecting God's character and experiencing his power. They said, we'll never find any charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. You see, when we walk in holiness, we show the world a little glimpse of what God is like. 1 Peter 1, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it's written, be holy, because I am holy, God says. But it's not just a case of us gritting our teeth and trying harder, because God's power is available. That's an Old Testament truth. Leviticus 20, consecrate yourselves and be holy, because I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. Just dive a little deeper here with me. In the New Testament, there are three aspects of holiness. They are positional, they are practical, and they are perfect. Let me explain. Positional holiness means that as a Christian, you are already made holy, set apart for God through the work of Jesus. But then there is practical holiness, which happens on a day-to-day -day basis as we walk with God and experience His change and transformation. And then there is perfect sanctification, which is what happens when Jesus returns and every tear will be wiped away and we will be made fully holy. In other words, if I can put it like this, we are holy, we are becoming holy, and we will be holy according to the New Testament. So how does this work? Well, it, it, it works as we respond to God. Character is formed as we collaborate with other disciples. That's why small groups are so important. It works as we establish good habits. Look at Daniel. He had great habits that helped him in crisis. Three times a day, he got down on his knees to pray. And it says in Daniel 6.10, just as he had done before. 
and he fasted, and he sought wisdom, and he was respectful to authority. And the good habits he chose helped him then instinctively choose well in crisis. On January the 15th, 2009, flight 1549 took off from LaGuardia, New York, headed for North Carolina, 155 passengers on crew and crew on board. There was a bird strike that took out the engines, and Captain Chesley Sullenberger was the lead pilot. Maybe you've seen the movie starring Tom Hanks. And Sullenberger spoke what he thought might be his final words to ground control. He said, we'll be in the Hudson. And he landed the plane in the Hudson River, and they called it the miracle of the Hudson. It wasn't a miracle. You see, what happened there is that for 40 years, Sullenberger had learned how to fly a plane. So when the crisis happened, he didn't have to turn to a manual, but instinctively, he had been formed, ready for that crisis. He made the choice and landed the plane. Our problem is when we don't allow our character to be shaped and we rely on making a good decision when the temptation comes, but if our lives are framed and shaped by good habits, we will instinctively do what is right with God's help when the crisis comes. So what good habits do we need to form? And There might be small ones. I've, I've got an electric toothbrush. You know the electric toothbrush? 30 seconds, 30 seconds, 30 seconds, 30 seconds. Smiley face. I love the smiley face. So, top 30 seconds, I pray for my grandsons. Bottom 30 seconds, I pray for my kids. Back 30 seconds, I, I pray for my uh, daughter-in-law and uh, my son-in-law. And then bottom, I pray for Kay. I pray mostly for Kay. Lord knows she needs prayer, and everybody said... It's a simple little habit. Another little habit I've developed, I try and work out five mornings a week. This physique doesn't come by accident. I hate it. I hate it. Every morning I get up and my mind says, what are you thinking? Eat pizza. So I put my exercise clothes next to the bed. The first thing I see when I wake up in the morning is the exercise clothes. I have to step over them. I have to deliberately avoid them. If I'm not going to work out, it's so simple. But the framing of good habits, and I, in preparation for this message, I've, I've been thinking, so fasting with prayer, well, what, what about that? And, and other habits. A world-class 100-meter sprinter knows that they prepare for 10 years for 10 seconds. It's called virtue ethics, being framed by our habits and prepared for the crisis moments. How about that? Number four. Number four, let's see through the lies. Let's see through the lies. Purity and integrity bring liberation. You see, there's something beautiful about Daniel. They're searching him out. They really want him. The king wants him as prime minister. And right at the start, when he has the healthier diet than everybody else, there's something great because living God's way is good for us. And when we don't live God's way, it's bad for us. I became a Christian when I was 17. 
And um, before that, I used to be the first person drunk at every party. I'm not in any way pleased to admit that. It was a mess. I used to show up at a party and I'd get a pint glass and I'd fill it with spirits and mix them all up and I'd be instantly drunk. And why did I do that? It's because my friends said, it's kind of cool. You're going to go and get out of your head. Awesome. I'll tell you how awesome it was. I'd get home in a drunken stupor and I would kneel in worship before a porcelain altar. Get my drift? And I'd think, I'm going to throw up, I'm going to throw up, I'm going to throw up. It's going to happen, it's going to happen, I sense it. I would then throw up and it wouldn't be quite so awesome. It was degrading. Let me use an extreme example. The Nazis in the concentration camps sought to kill their prisoners before they killed their prisoners. And they did that by dehumanizing them. They would never refer to a prisoner by name, only a number. And it is reported that they usually referred to a prisoner by the term Scheiss, which is the German cuss word for excrement. And they treated them accordingly. Melissa Raphael says this. Oh, but actually, before I tell you about this, this, this is kind of awful, but it illustrates the point. They told the women to cut their prayer shawls up, their prayer shawls, and use them when they were menstruating. Why? Because they wanted to profane anything that those women viewed as holy by having them soil them. And they made them take their prayer books and tear the pages out and line their shoes with them so that their shoes... That those prayer pages would be trampled into the mud. Melissa Raphael, let's bring up that quote. In Auschwitz, the absence of sanitary facilities in the women's camp of 14,000 women was a deliberate way of erasing the humanity of women, condemning them to die in and as excrement. The surface of the body was broken and covered over by lice and fleas, encrusted with mud and filth, separating sores and boils, crap by su- cracked by sunburn and frostbite. Here's the point. It was a systematic program of degradation designed to steal all hope. Could eyes be opened today to the fact that temptation, even though it offers elevation, satisfaction, like it did in the Garden of Eden, you shall be as gods, But what it delivers is degradation, a systematic program, catastrophic. Could our eyes be opened? But the last thing is this, number five, and that is that holiness is social, social holiness, looking beyond ourselves. The satraps tried to find ground for charges against Daniel in his conduct of the government's affairs, the government affairs, but they were unable to do so. You see, in Daniel's case, this was about his personal integrity, personal holiness, but his life affected a nation very specifically. You say, well, of course it did. He was nominated to be prime minister. He was a a political prophet. But ladies and gentlemen, 
this holiness stuff, this is not just about my little life and yours. This is about us impacting our culture. Holiness includes a concern for the poor, for the widow, for the alien. It includes a a biblical concern for the care of the environment, not because we worship the planet, but because we worship the God who created the planet. It's about looking beyond our own needs, serving, giving, you count, serve 6-8, adopt a family, missions. Northern Colorado should be better because the Christians are around. I want to show you a news clip that came from a newspaper I found this week. Uh, bringing Ugandan child rights home. This 10-year-old lad uh, traveled to Uganda yesterday and arrived there today. Traveled with his dad. And uh, he's gone there. Uh, he's had meetings at his school with the students and he's going to go and report back to the whole school and they're going to figure out how they can help the beautiful people of Uganda, many of, some of whom face incredible needs. I beg your forgiveness. I beg your forgiveness because this could be seen as being self-indulgent because that's my grandson. And this morning, I got the picture of him having landed in Uganda, and I'm thrilled, excuse me, and I'm a bit terrified because I want his little heart to be touched but not broken. But you see, this lad is doing this because his parents have taught him that to follow Jesus doesn't just mean that you get your life sorted out, but to follow Jesus means that you have a passion and a heart see the world get changed. Social holiness. John Wesley, the great Methodist preacher, he said, the gospel of Christ knows of no religion but social religion. No holiness but social holiness. The way we live should affect the city in which we live. As we serve, as we give, as we care. We're not into eschatology, eschatology. What's that? Well, we're getting out of here anyway, so, you know, let it all burn. No. God so loved the world. And we want to love the world too. A friend of mine, Gerard Kelly, wrote a poem. I've shared it before, maybe 10 years ago. It's called Humanifesto. In a moment, we're going to pray. But before we pray... Let me read the poem. It sums up, I think, beautifully the heartbeat of this message. I want to be a grace gorilla, no longer a chameleon of karma. The time has come to stand out from the crowd. I want to give forgiveness a fighting chance of freeing me to live in love and live it out loud. I want to drink deep of the foolishness foolishness of wisdom instead of swallowing the wisdom of fools, to find a source in the deeper minds of meaning. I want to search out the unsearchable, to invoke the invisible, to choose the truths the TV hypnotists aren't screening. No camouflage, no entourage, no smoothly fitting in. I want a faith that goes further than face value and a beauty that goes deeper than my skin. 
I want to be untouched by my possessions instead of being possessed by what I touch. To test the taste of having nothing to call mine. To hold consumption's cravings back. To be content with luck or lack. To live as well on water as on wine. I want to spend myself on those I think might need me. Not spend all I think I need on myself. I want my heart to be willing to make house calls. Let those whose rope is at an end find in me a faithful friend. Let me be known as one who rebuilds broken walls. No camouflage, no entourage, no smoothly fitting in. I want a faith that goes further than face value and a beauty that goes deeper than my skin. I want to be centered outside the circle to be chiseled from a different seam. I want to be seduced by another story and drawn into a deeper dream, to be anchored in an undiscovered ocean, to revolve around an unfamiliar sun, a boombox tuned to an alternate station, a bullet fired from a different gun, no camouflage, no entourage, no smoothly fitting in. Lord Jesus, we want a faith that goes further than face value and a beauty that goes deeper than our skin. Would you close your eyes with me that we might pray that God might open them? Lord, Thank you for the privilege, the privilege of being your people. Help us to realize the dignity of what it means to live beautifully with your help. Help us to walk in genuine holiness. Help us to experience your power. Help us to see through the lies that sin presents. Devastation, degradation shame. Help us to reflect your beautiful character. And we pray too that you'll help us to establish good habits that frame character so that when testing comes, we'll choose well. Finally, Lord, help us to be a blessing to our community and to our world as we live out the truth of the kingdom. We agree together in Jesus' name. Everyone said.